Welcome to Screw the Hierarchy, episode 63. This is Deb Falzoy, and this week I'm talking about what's happening at Goldman Sachs with workplace abuse and the 13 first-year analysts who reported this toxic work culture. Are you ready to hear more about this? More after this. If you're a target of workplace abuse and want to break free of the grips of abusive power, you've found your place. I'm your host, Deb Falzoy, and the podcast begins now. I'm talking this week about the articles in the New York Times about Goldman Sachs and the 13 disgruntled first-year analysts who created this um, PowerPoint presentation called Working Conditions Survey. Um, where they exposed some of the abuses going on in Goldman Sachs. And the reason that this became a New York Times article, or two articles, I should say, is because this survey, this slide deck that they created as a result of the survey, went viral on social media. So the two articles that I'm referencing are called I'm in a Dark Place, Complaints at Goldman Sachs Set Off a Workplace Debate, from March 19th. And then there's another one called Current and Former Investment Bankers React to Claims of Workplace Abuse by Junior Analysts at Goldman Sachs from March 22nd, a follow-up article. So I'm going to talk about the conditions that these um, analysts were exposed to and what some of the current and former investment bankers had to say about them. There are kind of two sides to this There was actually a debate about this, which I find uh, awful. Um, But then I'm going to dive a little bit more into the details in the survey because I'm going to talk about this sort of interplay between incompetence and abuse, um, which I have seen in a lot in my career um, where it's kind of hard to tell sometimes. where incompetence stops and where abuse starts. And in this case, just from the sound of it, it sounds like the investment banking world is full of hazing, um, which, you know, explains where that, uh, you know, that that it is more malicious than it is incompetence. But, um, either one can be, can have an abusive impact, um, so I'm going to talk about that, the, the tactics that are used that can be both and can be hard to tell, you know, where, where the intent is, which is why we're moving legislatively to a bill that doesn't uh, focus on the intent. It focuses on the impact, which is the important piece here. So um, just as a general kind of breakdown Um, These analysts reported that they were working around 100 hours a week. Most considered themselves victims of workplace abuse. They rated their job satisfaction as 2 out of 10 and said that they were unlikely to stay at Goldman Sachs in six months if working conditions remained the same. In addition to these uh, working conditions and, you know, assessments of their, their own happiness... They actually cited these abuse tactics of unrealistic deadlines, being ignored in meetings, and micromanagement as major sources of stress. 
And they said at the end of it, which I'm going to get into a bit later, they said that 80 hours per week should be the limit of how much they're expected to work. And they gave some other suggestions that I think are pretty, um, pretty telling of what this workplace culture was like. So in their words, some of them said, quote, there was a point where I was not eating, showering or doing anything else other than working from morning until after midnight. Um, one of them said, quote, my body physically hurts all the time and mentally I'm in a really dark place. And one of them said, quote, I didn't, I didn't come into this job expecting a 9am to 5pms, but I also didn't expect consistent 9am to 5ams either. So there's this two sides of the debate here. They're calling, this article's calling it the no sympathy crowd and the violin playing crowd. So the no sympathy crowd says that these, these first year analysts don't have a right to complain about their long hours, that they're highly educated. They chose this field because it pays so much. And it starts, it doesn't just start at six figures. It starts at $150,000 or more as a, as a job, uh, first job straight out of college, with a promise that within a decade, the compensation will reach seven figures. So based on age and experience, these first-year analysts immediately become members of what they're calling the 0.1% club. Um, and these these long hours also shouldn't be a surprise because every recruiting tool or um, depiction in Hollywood makes that aspect of the job very clear. Um, and then the violin playing crowd, actually, let me, let me stop for a second and go to the other article where there are some quotes from current and former investment bankers, um, as part of this, this side of the debate. So this first one says, um, my view is that if it's not to your liking, quit and find another line of work. It won't pay as well, but it's also possible that you won't learn as much. I am still reaping the benefits of what I learned. Um, another one says that they just, they basically just, you know, could have left and worked fewer hours and made less money, but they just weren't interested in that. Another one says um, that they knew the short-term pain was good for the long-term gain, and now they're living comfortably, which was enabled by their first years at Goldman Sachs. Um, let's see here. Another one says it was ex the, the abuse and being yelled at was expected, but they say my message for these analysts is if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Um, and those are the, the basic quotes from the second article. So painting this picture of, I had to go through it. So you should have to go through it too, because I learned things from it. And that's just par for the course. Um, the other side, what they're calling the violin playing crowd basically says this doesn't have to be par for the course. This, you know, that, that mental health matters, mental health of young workers matters, mental health of, of everyone should matter. Um, but no one should be forced to work that much. And this is the interesting piece of it. They say, what's more, the long hours are inefficient, unproductive, and simply part of an ego-driven hazing ritual by older bankers who suffered the same fate in less enlightened times. So the quotes that I just read support that, that, that they feel like, you know, well, I had to go through it, so you should too. Um, 
But this side of the debate says abuse is abuse, no matter how much money someone's being paid. And they say banks misrepresent the workload during the hiring process by talking about improving work-life balance, but then not doing anything about it. Um, and then back to the second article on the on this side of the debate, someone says, I threw in the towel and left banking because no amount of money was worth that the terrible lifestyle. Someone says, um, you know, we would do the math on the compensation and realize that we were making less than a minimum wage per hour. It wasn't worth being tortured. My health still suffers from my years on Wall Street. Someone says, in hindsight, it could have actually killed me, but I was too young to realize this. Um, and somebody else says, I spent many long nights in the office at the behest of associates and VPs, most of the time for no reason, but they might need me. Then I joined the military where I had better work-life balance and more respectful leadership than I did in banking, which I find kind of shocking, actually. Um, so getting into the the details of the actual survey, and if you look at this first New York Times article, they actually link to the survey um, via, it, it's in Google Drive. And at the, you know, there's more quotes at the end. It goes through the data, and then it goes through more quotes. Um, I think I've read most of these, uh, but to just to, or or some of them, but just to add to the conversation here, someone said, I've been through foster care and this is arguably worse. And um, someone said, being unemployed is less frightening to me than what my body might succumb to if I keep up this lifestyle. Someone said that their anxiety levels are through the roof. And then someone said, what is not okay to me is 110 to 120 hours over the course of a week. The math is simple. That leaves four hours a day for eating, sleeping, showering, bathroom, and general transition time. This is beyond the level of hardworking. This is inhumane slash abuse. So the end of this uh, survey, where they give their recommendations for for fixing the situation, um, some of them are are specific to their actual, you know, uh, there's acronyms in here, basically. Um, but, you know, like I said, they they said that 80 hours per week should be considered maximum capacity. Um, you know, they're talking about like what they're giving recommendations about what priorities should be about basically how to how to restructure things so that they are more um, respected, basically, or their time is more respected. They're talking about um you know, they said client meetings requiring materials should be scheduled at least one week in advance of the meeting date. Teams should be required to meet ASAP when a meeting is set to align on content, timing, and capacity. Um, they're saying that for client meetings, teams should be pencils down 20, 12 hours before the meeting. So this gets into that fine line of when are they, um, when does it become hazing or malicious versus complete incompetence and both are both are abusive I'm not debating that that piece of it um but sometimes just just willful um willful lack of interest in creating a better work environment for people on the lower rungs 
at work or at any rung for that matter, um, becomes abusive. They're telling you what they need to work better and not, not to be put in a, um, a dangerous position in terms of mental health and physical health, then employers should listen to that. Um, and it shouldn't take coming up with a presentation in the style of presentations that they're used to designing um, to go viral on social media, to get New York Times attention, not once but twice, in order for there to be change in a company. Um, but that's where we're at because we don't have a law to hold companies like Goldman Sachs accountable for their abusive policies and practices because actually at the end here, it says the Friday night 9 p.m. policy and Saturday policy need to be respected. So clearly they have a policy that restricts the hours um, for work, but it's not enforced. So clearly Goldman Sachs is playing lip service to holding up certain values and then, you know, in recruitment and um, and then not enforcing them um, like they should out of respect for human beings, regardless of, of where they are in their career, how old they are. Um, this is an abusive practice. So I'm really glad to see that this has come to light. I'm really um, glad to see that they brought up not just, you know, the, the, um, the yelling at or public criticism or ignoring in meetings, but also the organizational abuses like um, unrealistic deadlines or um, the, you know, just, just the uh, having policies and not enforcing them. Um, but this list is pretty clear about being abusive in terms of the micromanagement, the blaming without justification, the unrealistic deadlines, the unwarranted public criticism, the shunning, ignoring it in meetings. Um, that's something, some of these things are things that I experienced in my first job um, out of college with uh, an insecure boss, and they're not acceptable. Those people should have consequences, and including being let go. Thank you for listening to Screw the Hierarchy. If you feel like you need more help, I have a free guide to recovery steps at dignitytogether.org targets and a sign up for daily boosts through your inbox at the same place. All of the content in this podcast was created and edited by yours truly, Deb Falzoy, and the music you heard is from Kevin McLeod. All right, have a wonderful rest of your week and I will see you on the next